Hey folks, welcome back to the Track and Field Performance Podcast. This is episode 41. Today my guest was coach John Shepard. John is a horizontal jump specialist with over 10 years of experience coaching international and national level athletes, primarily in the UK. In recent years, he's extended his platform through his YouTube and Instagram channels where he talks about various topics relating to the horizontal jumps. I was delighted to sit down with John and talk about his ideas further, mainly pertaining to the winter preparation or fall preparation as it's known over in the US um, for horizontal jumpers and perhaps uh, demystifying some of the key components to developing horizontal jumpers over the course of the year and I think there's a lot of rich information for coaches to take away from this discussion. John talked about being specific early on in the training year and the multitude of ways that you can do that without running into hurdles such as burnout or um, essentially hurting the athlete's peak throughout the year. Um, This is something that I've definitely heard a lot of different coaches have various thoughts on. So I felt like that was very interesting and Again, something that might add something or something of value to your repertoire as you move forward with your training design. Um, I have to say, you know, John talks in way much more detail about these topics over in his YouTube channel. So I implore you to head on over there to John Shepard, writer and coach, um, so that you can get more details. But I'm excited for you to listen to this one and I hope you enjoy it. John Shepard, thanks so much for joining me on this week's episode of the Track and Field Performance Podcast. How are you keeping? I'm great, thank you, and thanks for having me. I'm delighted to have you, John. And it it actually is funny. One thing I probably haven't told you, although we met in person for the first time in May, is that I've been familiar with what you've been doing well before you started that YouTube channel, um, which was some years ago. I remember an athlete of yours that was European junior champion. It's a great introduction for you, but uh, you coached the European junior champion a few years ago and uh, Elliot Safo was kind of my age. And I remember Mm -hmm. wanting to find out what he was doing for training. So I remember looking on a Facebook page of yours where you would post your sessions um, Mm -hmm. there. And and I think it was like, you know, you were saying accelerations four by 10 meters and, and things like that. And it was interesting because at that time I was doing very much endurance based work. And that was the Mm -hmm. first actual glimpse of, let's say, me understanding that there was other ways to do it than, quote unquote, work hard, which is funny because it's probably something we're going to get into today in some shape or form. Um, But yeah, I've been kind of familiar with with you as far back as that kind of original training group you have. But to start things off, I actually want to go back further than that, which is your athlete background, because you're a pretty nifty long jumper uh, in your time, weren't you? I was reasonable. I jumped 7 meters 89 and ran 21.8. For those correlations there, 789, 21.8 might indicate how I didn't train properly because my 100 meter time was 11 dead. Now, I'm quicker, I reckon I was quicker than 11 dead, but we'll go on to that a little bit later on in how I was probably doing the wrong training. And that's what's informed me now as a coach to better train the athletes like Elliot, who you mentioned back in 2011 onwards. So, yeah, I was an international athlete and I coached more or less all my life because I worked in sports development and leisure centre management, different sports. But I only started doing athletics seriously, coaching-wise, when I was around about late 40s, 2010, around then. Um, 
but I've got quite a unique background as well in that I've been a magazine journalist, editor, and I've written a number of books on sports, health and fitness. I've trained with sportsmen and women across numerous events from rowing to football to track and having to write about it from a theoretical and an anecdotal standpoint has enabled me to pick up a lot of knowledge, which I'm able to transfer into my coaching. So I think I've been blessed with a background that enables me to coach probably slightly differently to others in that I'm a creative person and that creativity enables me to, I was going to say, make up coaching on the go. But in a way I do because you have to learn how to coach on the fly. But that's, I mean, that's going to go on to probably what we're going to talk about later. But my background, yeah, is multifaceted really in terms of sport, fitness. Yeah, I've, as I said earlier, I've written and been to various events all around the world, even ultra, ultra marathons. So I could even talk about endurance, not that I want to. <laughs> but that's partly how I yeah, learn how not to coach long and triple jump, because I know what happens to the body when you train for endurance. So um, anyway, I thought those are themes that we will go back, go on to later. But that's probably my, back. oh, I suppose I should bring you up to date. I've had a lot of success with junior athletes, but that's because I get them to be of a high standard to go to universities. Then I lose them for three to four years, and then I get them back. Now, that annoys me slightly because I would like to be able to coach somebody from 13 all the way through to 30. But my system, my approach works very much so with young athletes. And it's not that difficult. Difficult. It's not that different with older athletes as well. I use very similar methodology, but I'm, I have a reputation for year in, year out, producing young young talented jumpers um i think i thought it was easy to start off with with elliot sappho oliver newport jumping 770 elliot 786 within two years of me coaching both of them and a 756 guy as well obviously these guys had talent but it, what it did show me that i must must be coaching them properly even from the onset i had a philosophy which was less is more specific work highly technical highly speed orientated do only what you need to do, not what you think you need to do. There's a lot of things you can issue, you can discard from training. So I learned from my own experiences as a jumper that I never knew how to take off properly. I couldn't hold my free leg, for example, when taking off. So that was something paramount importance that I had to get my young athletes, my young jumpers to be able to do. Speed, if you're not fast enough, you're never going to jump eight metres or 680, male and female respectively. Boil it down. I realised very quickly that you boil it down to what will make you better. You don't need to do the tempo training, the speed endurance, although I'll get shot down in flames by quite a few coaches for saying that. But, um, yeah, um, it has my background and my co- – oh, I suppose I should – I've had young, young athletes this year go to the Commonwealth Youth Games, one from the UK or England, one from Trinidad. I coach athletes online as well as physically. I work out of South London and we seem to have a good catchment for talent. But I think it's also, I was once told or asked, is long jump an easy event to coach? And the reason why I was asked that, because regardless of the distance that the person was jumping, the young athlete or the older athlete, they were all jumping further. So they thought, the other coaches said, thought it must be an easy event to coach because they're all getting better. It's how you coach. If you coach somebody technically, even if they're not the most talented of people, they're still going to jump further. And that's a huge area that I think is missing in long jump and or triple jump coaching. But long jump in particular, because 
long jump is often seen as a non-technical event or not as technical. You just have to run fast and take off. That's why very young athletes, 15, 16, 17 year olds, can jump prodigious distances because they're doing it maybe because they're physically more mature than others, but they are very fast and very powerful. To get somebody from, say, 720, 730 at 16 to 780, 8 metres at 19, 20, not easy. You have to know what it, it is easy if you know what you're doing. Mm. It's not easy if you don't know what you're doing. And I don't mean to sound um, facetious in any way there, but I have an approach that literally 99% of athletes, if I throw, or jumpers, if I throw the approach, my philosophy, my periodization models at them, they will improve no matter whether they're going to be a seven meter jumper or an eight meter jumper. Whatever I've come up with works. So I guess that's encapsulating my background, a little bit about my philosophy and where I oh where I am now. I suppose yes, I've coached for England, I've done work for Great Britain, Ireland. I did some mentoring sessions for Irish athletics, Belgium, and I'm currently doing some mentoring work for European athletics which was a bit scary because I'm doing a triple jump. And I'll freely admit that I know more about long jump than I do triple jump. But I was asked to mentor triple jump coaches, some of which have produced 17-metre jumpers and national coaches. So it forced me to learn more about the triple. But it's very interesting that nobody knows everything. We all know different things. And by me talking to these high-level coaches, I'm learning myself, and hopefully I'm giving them things to think about questioning, questioning why you're doing that. I think if we as coaches don't question why we're doing things, we won't get we won't get the answers, but we won't think. It's very easy to just do what you've done for years and years and years. And until somebody actually says, well, why are you doing six weeks of 300 meter running or speed endurance running at the beginning of the season? And the other coach, as we all do, might become defensive, but You've got to try not to be defensive. If you you genuinely believe and can justify why a certain modality produces results, fine. And if it produces results for you and your athletes, fine. But if you're just doing it because it's been done for decades or your coach gave it to you to do, then it shouldn't be done. You need to think really about what's going to benefit. And you need to be an individual. You need to be individualistic. You need to be specific to the needs of each athlete as well, identify their strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, anyway, yeah, I think I'm going. Yeah, but go not, at, not at all, John. And I think the great thing about, let's say, what you do is in comparison to maybe some of the other guests that I get on here is that, you know, I can see through your YouTube channel, which we'll definitely talk more about later in the conversation, is that your your methodology and, and techniques, et cetera, and thinking on things is very public, you know, and, and you know, you, you present it in a way that's oftentimes backed by research. Uh, you talk about the empirical evidence behind some, you know, components of your training. And so, yeah, I've got a good glimpse into what you kind of tend to gravitate towards and what you tend to discard. And some of the things mm. there, you mentioned them and and where they may have even come from, from your own background. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely want to, to kind of touch on some of those things um, a little bit more. And I suppose... Briefly speaking, if we just want to start the conversation off by talking about maybe your winter structure, I know you made a video on that recently. So the the winter training, perhaps on a weekly basis, what that entails, broadly speaking, and then the components within it, and then perhaps what you feel is not there compared to maybe some of the other philosophies that you've seen and why that might be. And you've alluded to some of those things as well, the tempo running, etc. 
I think we need to start off from the premise of where I start from. And I use an undulating block periodization methodology. I don't use traditional linear periodization. So there's no GPP general preparation phase of, of any extent. It's all almost like the competition specific training that we're doing all year round. So I'm undulating all the elements that are going to produce great long jump, triple jump performance, ability to swing the takeoff, free leg at takeoff, for example, foot plant, developing leg stiffness, heel recovery for sprinting from the start of the training year. I don't want to waste time plodding around a track just to get fitter. And as my athletes will testify, our sessions will last for two hours or hour and after two hours. There might be five to six units of drills of various components, jigsaw pieces that fit the long and triple jump puzzle together. So my fitness is specific jump fitness developed through repetition of specific drills of a high volume. And that's what we're doing at the beginning of the season. The volume of the drills is more. The intensity is slightly dialed back. But I will give you an example. We're doing downhill running at the beginning of the season. Now, and downhill drills, skipping drills, free leg landing takeoffs, scissors. Now, a lot of coaches might bring that in pre-season as a way to sharpen up the athlete. Yeah. But I'm doing it in start because overspeed training, generally speaking, doesn't work as an overspeed modality unless you've got parachutes that lift the athlete and reduce the drag, the friction against the track surface because you're going to want to break a little bit it's particularly downhill. Your cadence, may, you may feel faster, but you're breaking on each step. But the hidden ingredient of that training, I was going to throw it back to you. What do you think it might be? Probably training. development of eccentric capacity, I'm guessing, which is for takeoff handling or conversion yeah. of the speed upon takeoff. Yeah, exactly. It's so all those elements it's more and more. It's about sprinting. The quicker you get off the ground in sprinting from the foot contact the and the amortization, I never can say that word, phase, and the better the eccentric phase is, the stretch reflex, the quicker you're going to be. So a lot of these things are lateral thinking with my training. We want to improve the ability to get greater vertical velocity, both for the triple jump and the long jump, and improve sprint speed. Well, we're going to use downhill runs and drills as a means to that end, because mm -hmm. I've looked at research. Most of it says you won't get faster from doing it, directly but indirectly you will potentially can from the eccentric gains and also another theme of my training throughout the training year is potentiation joining a couple of modalities together so that you get a potentiating effect don't train weights in isolation train weights with plyometrics at the same time so you boost neural response and fast switch fiber capability for rapid force development I don't think it's rocket science when you really think about it, but again, not trying to sound conceited, I don't think a lot of people really think that way. I've asked my athletes, internationals, do you know of any other coaches who train similarly to me? I'm I know there are at the elite level, mm -hmm. but in the generality, there aren't that many. And um, I'm often, I won't say criticised, but... The eyebrows are raised when I say we don't do tempo, when I say we don't sprint much longer than 90 metres. Well, of course we do some runs beyond 90, but let's just talk about the concentration of my training. Mm -hmm. And they said, where's your fitness coming, uh, coming from? And I'm saying, well, do one of my sessions, or I'm explaining as I just have to you that the, the volume, the intensity, is creating the specific fitness, the reactivity, as I said, the speed, the technical ability to swing the hip again, as I've said. And a lot of that, I don't know if it goes over people's heads, but they just get stuck in their way of thinking. 
as I said again, as coaches, we need to question, we need to think, are we doing the right things? After that, it doesn't necessarily compare, but I'm going to say it. If you train for a marathon, you're going to do mileage, you're going to do volume. There is a right way to train for the marathon, more or less. You're not going to be able to run a two-hour marathon by doing 100-meter sprints. But that reverse logic for the long jump often doesn't get applied. Why are we doing 300-meter, 400-meter hurdler, 400-meter flat training for long and triple jump? There is a right way, in my opinion, humble opinion, to train for the jumps, as there is a more or less right way for the marathon as well. Of course, people have variations in terms of mileage, but you're going to do aerobic work, you're going to do sustained tempo efforts, et cetera, et cetera. And that logic, I don't think sometimes gets applied to um, long and triple jump. We don't do circuit training for a start, or very little circuit training. Yeah, you go on Instagram and everybody's jumping up and down, doing press-ups, crunches, et cetera, et cetera. If you do three times 30 meters of, meters of a marching drill, then three times 20 meters of heel recovery lunges, a very specific movement, mm -hmm. and, I've got, and then I'll walk through the takeoff movements, you're developing local muscular endurance, pre-training, pre-conditioning in a much more specific way than doing you know, your press-ups, your tricep dips, and movements such as that. So I, again, I'm looking, I develop the same, the qualities needed to jump far from a different perspective, from a very specific one, but it still produces the fitness because mm -hmm. none of my jumps run out of steam halfway through a competition. I mean, you're training the lactic energy system anyway, four to six seconds of effort. You need the high energy phosphates and chemicals to replenish in your muscles. And you that actually adapts to training. I think a lot of people don't realize that. You think about anaerobic fitness, then you get better at buffering lactate as it develops. But if you train the lactic system, you get better at producing the high intensity phosphates and chemicals that produce high powered energy. So that's why we train that way. To me, it's logic. And um, perhaps I'm a too logical person, but that's the way I apply it. So my winter training now isn't too dissimilar to the summer training. The months of October and November have greater variation because we don't do pit work, but we're still doing takeoff drills, penultimate step work. Pit work starts in about October together with run-up work, uh, should have said end of November, together with run-up work. And my mat drills that you may have seen on the YouTube channel. I definitely have. Of, yeah, that's another art, a dark art of long jump, how to actually take off something. Again, I don't think people fully understand. I mean, I didn't 10, 11 years ago, and I'm still learning now. I experiment with things, but again, trying to get back on topic. So I am specifically general at the start of the season mm -hmm. so that the work we're doing is not overly detraining. I go back to where I started at the beginning when I started talking to you about my own training. This is what I understand. It's what I experienced firsthand. Six weeks of 300 meters running, three sessions a week or 200s. I never got fast. Well, I, I tongue in cheek that. By the time the indoor season came, I was really only as fast as I was at the beginning of the time we started winter training. Mm -hmm. You've just wasted the, the six the summer season where you're supposedly in peak condition. Yeah. To detrain yourself, to then rebuild up to try and get going fast again. Again, now I'm not original saying this. Jeremy Fisher, Dan Pack, they all train the elite coaches train speed all year round. But I think the generality of coaches out there, and I think 
because I reach those coaches through my social media, it's like, well, how do you train to eat speed all year round? Mm-hmm. You can't. You've got to build up. You can't just go flat out from the start because how do you peak? Well, that's another story. You know, peaking through undulating periodization and block methods is a lot easier than doing it from a linear perspective. Mm-hmm. You can only hold onto your peak for limited amounts of time through linear traditional periodization methods. A lot of the MAX-VF methods as well have been disproved over the years as well as not actually working. And again, if you employ logic, there was research many years back that double and triple periodization works better for long triple jump and sprints and single periodization. Again, I could throw the question back at you if you want to answer it. And so why do you think that's the case? So single versus double versus triple. And why does double and triple jump periodization seem to work better than single? For jumping and sprinting i'm actually not too familiar with double and triple periodization i'm definitely familiar with single so you might you might want to even just give that the audience for those who are in the same kind of boat as me a little bit of uh background into what that is or maybe perhaps i call it something different i know the very familiar with your undulating and and linear uh, phrasing there but uh go ahead and explain the double and triple well simply put single is one peak in a year Double is two peaks in a year, and triple is three peaks in a year. So the rationale for the second, the double and single, double and triple periodization models is there's more specific work in there. So if you think about it logically, there was research done that showed that you get greater percentage gains in I can't remember, it's high jump and long jump from the research I can remember from our double periodization, double periodization year. And again, the, it's staring you in the face. Why? Because there's more specific work in there. Yeah. So the logic is that when you utilize a training modality that doesn't deviate too far from the requirements of the event, you're going to get a greater return. So- yeah. Now, um, and you know what's funny, John? I'm going to actually just kind of give my own anecdotal background because it, it was all kind of brewing up there as you're as you're talking, and 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 actually very much like so connected to all the ideas you just put out there. So just when I was my first coach, very much the approach of uh, of endurance. Uh, training at that time and we would not hit speed work until like two weeks before indoor season i would end up getting dramatically better by each competition through the season because i was literally just touching on specific speed and work for the first time um and it would take me forever to hit a peak in the year and when that peak hit it was dramatically bigger than the rest but very hard to emulate again and funnily enough then i went um, after that period of time, went to Dublin and, and and switched over to a coach there, and he, and he had kind of said, "Look, we're going to be doing acceleration work from the beginning of the year, but we're going to do it in trainers. We're going to do our shoes for for the Europeans, um, and we're going to do it on grass. But they're going to be max effort." Mm-hmm. He says, "But the thing is, we're only going to do over twenty meters. So number one, you're not going to hit top speed. He's like, it's impossible, and you're on runners and in grass." But he's like, we're getting the technical rehearsal piece down. And we're also, you know, developing the nervous system and all the muscles that are relevant to, to you know, sprinting fast, you know, involved from the beginning. So we're not going from this massively slow twitch type training. And then you mentioned we're not also detraining ourselves off the back of a really successful summer, too. Um, and yes, then my experience was thereafter that. I would have a good indoor season. I'd also have a good outdoor season. They maybe wouldn't deviate as much from each other in terms of like, let's say 
the gap wouldn't be 50 centimeters between my indoor and my outdoor. Um, my two peaks might be within 20 centimeters of each other. But I do believe that my own personal experience does kind of fall in line um, when I went from the, to the more specific training that I was kind of able to to keep things up. And, and personally, if it helps to speak to the audience in any way that may be thinking uh, towards the endurance side, I never uh, ran out of gas myself with with that way of thinking it was a much more comp if i did it was a much more or if i got injured it was a much more complex thing than that it wasn't necessarily just you hadn't done enough endurance like i think that's a very singular like very narrow like kind of closed-minded way to look at it or not i mean not closed-minded but it, there's more variables at play than that oftentimes you know i think when you say closed-minded i know you didn't mean to say that i didn't want to say that in that way I think it's more people have difficulty understanding an undulating mm. periodization model than a straight, a straight, literally straight linear one, because it's easier to say, well, we go from 300s to 200s to 100s to 60s. The quantities decrease, the speed increases. But when you start playing around with, we're going to run 95% in October, one session, and we're going to go to 80%, and we're going to go maybe to 100% another, then we're going to run downhill. And we're going to do drills at maximum intensity. They suddenly throw their hands up and say, well, how do you do that? And that's where the qualitative aspect of coaching comes in and not the quantitative aspect. And that's where, and again, it's no slight on coaches. It's the intellectualization of the ability to coach comes in because you've got to be able to create sessions and workouts and not just do it in a... 10 minus four, 8 minus 6 minus 4 minus 2 way, a linear way. It's difficult to, I find it, I don't find it difficult to explain as I think I'm hopefully getting it across now, but I find it difficult for people to grasp the metal and create an undulating or a block methodology. I mean, some people think, well, you're just throwing everything at the, everything into the pot at the same time and hope, stirring it up, and hopefully it will come out good. Well, I suppose in many ways, if you put the right ingredients into the pot and stir it up without too much thought, you will improve the athlete. But there's a greater degree of subtlety because it's the tweaking of the ingredients. How much of that one do you put in? How much of that one do you put in? And how do you do it? And I'll, not that people can see me, but I will hold my hand up and say, a lot of mine is intuitive. I will turn up at training. I know what we're going to do. I know what units I'm supposed to be doing. But if I need to tweak it, or if I've forgotten, I'll put in a, a unit of dribbles, leg cycles, foot strike drills instead of takeoff drills. And to be honest, probably doesn't matter in the great scheme of things because it's specific. It's about the if you keep doing the right things that are going to improve you, as long as you keep doing them, you're going to improve. What I'm trying to do now is take my level of coaching to the next level where I can be more precise. So I could almost try to work out what drill unit and the potentiation between the drill units and the blocks of training are best and better. And that's why I've investigated different training means this year, a few different ones like resisted drills from the start. So harness work and also looking at increasing vertical velocity by assisted plyometrics. So I'm trying to put into the training equation a few different things and things I've learned over the years as well. I talked about potentiation potentiation you can potentiate jumping sessions and increase vertical velocity a couple of surveys indicated that if you do 
heavy load jump squats. And I don't even think you need to do heavy load jump squats. You could probably do anything. You could do cleans. Mm-hmm. You could do simple throws. Anything that's going to potentiate. Then you go and jump. Chances are you're going to get high, greater vertical velocity or run faster. So it's just remembering to put them into the schedule and put them in at the right place. And that's what I'm trying to do more this year than previous years. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to be more precise. But again, I know going around and back a little bit between periodization and my how I start the training year. But I hopefully that I've shown that it's putting the specifics in from the start and not deviating. I mean, another coach mentioned to me, you mentioned about doing acceleration work. Another coach said to me, you know, I thought, well, why not? He said, you could start doing 10-meter fly sprints from day one if you wanted, because how many strides are you going to run in 10 meters? Three. So you're not going to probably stress your body that much. Yes, of course. You probably want I mean, all my jumpers are supposed to come back to training ready to sprint. That's another issue. Obviously, if your athletes have gone and been on the beach for six weeks and done no training, then obviously you've got to be a bit more careful. But I want mine to be able to come back and, yeah, literally, if I said to you, you're going to jump off eight steps, they could do it. So therefore, we can hit the ground running. To do that only requires probably one or two sessions a week. Go to the local park, do some drills, do some build-up runs up to 90%. That's all you need to do, three or four of those, and you're keeping your soft tissue, your connective tissue ready, your neural system. I mean, the central nervous system is also crucial because if you do loads of tempo and anaerobic, you detrain the nervous system, let alone the physical system. So anyway, yeah, so I'm trying to put all the ingredients in, newer ingredients at the right time, starting from a base of specificity that will produce greater specificity as the uh, and adaptation as the months go by. Yeah. No, I think the the sequence of things seems pretty pretty clear from your descriptions there. Even actually, I think about sequence, that word, you know, when you're doing the drills and performing them, you're trying to get the sequence of muscles to fire in a specific way that's relevant to the event. That's what I pick up from that fitness aspect that you talk about is that, you know, we could, of course, do the traditional way of doing tempo to achieve that but but why when i know that number one i've never got a detraining effect or a run into the brick wall of my athletes aren't fit enough and then better yet when i know it also yields benefits in terms of learning motor skills and everything like that as well which you're going to then of course place greater emphasis on and then also greater intensity on throughout the winter as it progresses so that kind of brings me to yeah the rationale for kind of one thing I would say, John, is that I've noticed about your training a little bit more than other people. I definitely think like it's not from at least the people I've been around that prioritizing the relevant abilities like acceleration, uh, jump training, etc. You know, from early on, like because you, as you mentioned, Dan Path and many of the coaches I've worked with in some capacities are kind of influenced by him. That's not like necessarily foreign, but what I think is interesting and, and I want you to talk more about it is that you do place an emphasis on the drill side of things and, and kind of um, breaking down movements into walking motions and, and things like that. And that's something that like is a feature you talked about in the beginning that, that being able to hold your free leg was something you weren't able to do. So is that kind of, I suppose the first and foremost, most important ability that you're trying to get with those walking drills um, and then kind of what other positions do you tend to really think can work well in those, those, uh, yeah, those drills? So just to start the training session in a specific way that gets mind and muscles ready for the more intense drills to follow. 
Mm-hmm. But I, when I coach athletes for the first time, if I do like a, a school session or whatever, something like that, the amount of athletes that you say, right, just walk through the takeoff action, the arms go the wrong way, they, they can't, they lift, they lift the leg up, they don't swing the free leg forwards. So sometimes you've just got to teach them the basics. Perhaps it's maybe symptomatic of more sedentary young people, but I've got athletes that still can't swing their hip properly. And we're working on, you know, working on it over a period of time. I've got quad dominant athletes who can't recruit their hamstrings. So if you're doing a march, I call it walking, running, which is obviously an oxymoron. You can't walk and run, but you walk through the walking, running action. And if you can't lift your heel up to your butt and pull the foot through to the front, that shows that you're very quad dominant or you've got no rooting of your mental, your neural pathways into your hamstrings. So I'm trying to get the athlete to learn, albeit at a slow pace, what they're supposed to do. And then, of course, the next unit of drill might be a leg cycling drill. So therefore, we're working on the heel recovery in that instance, using a quad dominant person or a lack of rear side mechanics person to fire those muscles. So we've already sowed the seeds in their mind that they're going to be able, these are the muscles I need to work. And then in the next unit, they're working them at greater intensity. Now, there are coaches, and I think Dan Paff was one of them, who said that drills don't have relevance to, too much relevance to the actual event. Because we were talking about, I think it's Gerald Mack, the Polish guy that invented the A skips, B skips. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. one of his stories. That all those guys are really, really good. The Canadian athletes, and I'm guessing around about the 1980s, were great at the drills, but they couldn't sprint. He tells mm-hmm. that quite a lot of his presentations. I think the issue is, yeah, I don't like A skips because of the bounce. I think they're a bit foreign anyway. But yes, you're right. The movement velocity, the angular momentum of a drill is not exactly or nowhere near, depending on the pace you do it at, as the actual event itself. But I'm going to this is, put this part of this for the moment. But what, what's what's the squat? That's even more removed from a, from from a long jump takeoff. So if we're walking through the takeoff and swinging the hip at a velocity that's going to be quicker and not um, constrained by the restrictions of a weight training movement, we are getting a greater potential for transference. So all my drills are about transference. Plus, I think we need to also qualify that I see them as conditioning drills or conditioning elements. They're not just drills. Everything apart from walking pace things, drills, is plyometric. If you're doing a leg cycling drill or a skipping drill, it is a plyometric movement because of the contact. Therefore, you are training stretch reflex, specific, well, not relatively specifically, and sometimes very specifically through the actual the drill movement. So, if you start to see drills as conditioning means for specific fitness, for background specific fitness, then I think you begin to see the, the, the validity for doing them. Again, I am often told that I'm one of the few coaches that uses so many drills. I, I invent them, but I don't invent them to the nth degree. I only use the ones that I think work. If they don't work, we don't do them. I think this is a bit of an odd thing to say. I think I have a slight advantage in that still at my old age, I can do a lot of the drills. So it's, sometimes it's very difficult for a, you know, an older coach, and I'm generalizing a bit here, because obviously if you were coaching, you'd be able to demonstrate the drills. But a lot of the time, people can't demonstrate what's required. Or you can get your phone out and show them, which is, yeah, that's very useful as well. It's, 
the ability on my part to actually do the drills myself, that sometimes tells me, like, rather like an ageing footballer who's watching a game and knows where the ball's going to go before it's passed, I've got that intrinsic feel of the drill and I know, oh yeah, this is this actually works your hip flexor. This actually is going to be great for an ultimate step movement. Mm-hmm. You, can feel it, you can feel it yourself. Sometimes it does make it easier to translate that drill to other people and tell them what to do. But I do think sometimes it's because of that lack of creativity and knowledge of how to put the drills together that you get stymied as a coach that you might only just, athletes get to the track, they stretch, they do a few high knees and a few leg cycles and then they're off sprinting. Basically, you haven't done anything there that's going to help the athlete run faster. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's partly why I'm trying to go on a little bit about don't see the drills just as drills. You have to be on your athletes as well. I'm always at them. You're not rotating your heel. You're not striking the ground hard enough. Your posture's not right. Mm-hmm. You're leaning forwards. You're looking down. If you don't do that, they get into bad habits. But at least mine are doing things that, well, the ones that do it properly, they know they're going to get a, a return on it. After the time you go to the track and people are just chatting whilst they're doing their drills. Yeah. I'm all for a little bit of engagement and it's got to be fun training, but you've got to put your mind into it. Mm-hmm. Don't put your mind into it. You're going to fall 50, 60% short. Yeah. I, there's a couple of things there that I think would both complement Dan's point of view and um, your own. And I don't think they're by any means uh, mutually exclusive. Or um, that is, you know, I think what what, what he's making in, in that or the case he's making in those discussions is that people are spending too much time using, let's say, the drills as the main body, expecting that there's going to be a huge physiological return when there's just not. And you've made you've backed that up. You've said, yes, that's true. But I do believe and I think this is something that I've realized as I've got older, as I've done a lot of intentional work that you know you start to think about what you're doing and actually i suppose again be intentional with with say say pulling your you know uh when you're doing performing a hitch kick let's say a single leg hitch kick or or a one and a half hitch kick like when you rehearse that movement in a walking motion and we often see athletes do that at competition you're building the i suppose feel of what you're trying to do um and that's something that you know you're taking in interpreting and rehearsing and i suppose it makes sense that you're kind of embedding that in the training session so that it again potentiates them for the more specific thing but repetition i can imagine those positions sticking um Mm -hmm. and 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 again not even that but once they've got the feel for your cues etc they can do it independently and i suppose that's another piece that I think most coaches want is that, is that kind of um, autonomous athlete, you know, that the person who's able to go out there and freely express the the key positions associated with the event and um, without much instruction to kind of remove themselves or make themselves almost obsolete, as they say. Um, yeah. yeah, so I, I, I do believe that there there makes uh, you make a really strong case for for why, you know, you're getting fundamentals in at the beginning of the session and setting you set yourself up for the main body, which of course is, is going to be more intense and where you're going to probably yield the actual physiological benefit. But I do think that like in a technical event, like the long jump, understanding what kind of, I suppose, a position feels like and when you're receiving instruction, how to emulate that 
greater repetitions in, in those key positions um, could certainly accelerate the learning. Oh, for sure. I mean, if there's any coaches out there, I'm sure there are listening, of course, ask your athlete to walk through the hitch kick action and see if they go blank. Because even some of my guys, when I, when I come up with this idea, and it's not original to me, when I got them to do it for the first time, some of them go like, how do I do it? <laughs> and they actually have to think. And then I say, well, are you supposed to push your foreleg out after you've taken off and held your drive? Oh, yeah. Um, so it's just reinforcing and making them think a little bit. Of course, when you do things quicker, it doesn't necessarily translate as well. And some people pick up skills more than others. So you have to you have to use different ways to get the most out of athletes. But yeah, I mean, that, the, the process of the drilling produces the results and the cueing. And hopefully that translates and produces that autonomous athlete, as you were talking about. Yeah. Um, and it's funny you mentioned the hitch kick because that's actually you know what what I was trying to get at there myself. I know that a coach tried to teach me the hitch kick years ago, and I just couldn't for the life of me you know do it. And now that I'm older and I've actually taught people how to do it, it's funny how I've actually began to learn myself how to do it. And I could t- I believe I could teach myself, and I'm I'm actually currently doing it in in training. Um to kind of improve my ability to handle rotation, et cetera. So it's kind of like it was, it was an appropriate need for me, but funnily enough, it's, it's, it's just the um, amount of videos I've watched and, and, and I guess uh, the amount of coaching material and I suppose a greater understanding for the event now than I probably had then. But ultimately what's fed into that is, is repetition, repetition in a different kind. But as you made made it out, you know, many of your athletes trying to do that or or you maybe your more your less seasoned ones would struggle. I would have struggled and I did struggle those years ago. And again, I said intentional learning on my half is what's actually brought me to the place now where I actually could do that. And although that's mm-hmm. not in the same context as your drills, I do believe it's an understanding for how things look and feel. That's the whole point I'm getting at. And I think I can I suppose I'm I'm using that as a a justification to why I think your your way of doing things probably would work. Um but just the you know going through the the winter you you've talked about introducing like the likes of short, medium and long approach and using mats. That's something that you regularly talk about and I think that's a very interesting topic because you, I've experimented briefly with these things and and Again, in some, I would say in a lot of cases, that's also maybe one of your more unconventional ways of uh, eliciting the responses you want um, compared to other coaches. But I've tried that probably more than than the drills. And especially when it comes to both technical and physiological adaptations, I, I really do believe that they have a place uh, once not done, perhaps excessively. But that's the whole idea of contrasting and everything like that. Um, but yeah, you know, I remember even a coach saying to me years ago, like, how do you really teach penultimate? Like you can't, you know, without probably ruining the athlete, teach the penultimate. Cause what you obviously usually do is, is tell them to drop too much. Um, but you, you, you teach it in another way. And, and I think it's an interesting one. So how about, uh, give us a little glimpse into what that is. The first thing you say is don't drop your hips. Because if you tell them to drop their hips, they're going to drop their hips. And the fact that they go flat-footed, that's the other thing you have to tell them. Penultimate step, put your foot down flat. Put your down. If you put your foot down flat, 
and your hips are going to drop by a couple of centimetres or more. But if you tell them to bend the knee, then they put their backside on the ground. So you say you're going to run flat through the last three steps, but the penultimate step is going to be flat-footed. Now, you can also instruct the athlete to push from the third step from the second step, and then push again from the second penultimate into the takeoff. You can also look at the length of the last step and try to get more of an eccentric element. You can condition the eccentric element of the penultimate step as well, because you've got to, I'm not going to say block, but you've got to be strong in that position. You don't want to be bending too much at the knee. As I said, most jumpers is a couple of centimetres. So by using the mats, and that's not original to me, um, Mike Powell's coach, I'm trying to think of his name. Randy Hunter. Yes. He reached out to me on Instagram when he saw them, and he said, you got it right. <laughs> so, well, that's recommendation enough, because he uses them. Mm-hmm. He told me about the distances, but I picked it up again from, well, I knew that it existed, but one of my athletes went to Louisville, and his coach was um, Larry Marks's coach, and he used those drills. And so when Oliver Newport, guy who jumped 770, came back, I... We have, we're lucky to have these meter by meter mats, which are like track material, only a centimeter or so thick. And I started experimenting with them. And over the years, I've kind of refined that methodology. I can get, I don't like sounding blowing smoke on my own backside, but I suppose it's the reality. I can probably teach somebody to take off properly who's never done too much long jumping in about 10 minutes. If, if they, yeah, nine times out of 10. I might not be able to teach them a hitch kick in 10 minutes, but if you put the mats in the right place, tell them to do the right things, they will position off the takeoff and hold their drive. I've seen it happen, like eureka moments for them. And, and I, I say, right, we're going to take off properly. And they say, I can't do it. So just do what I say. And invariably, they will take off properly because the mats put you in the right position to take off. If you say, as I said, you don't want to tell the person to lower on the penultimate. If you say the first mat out, the one on the third step is centered about four meters out from the board. This is off of any run up from 10, 10, meet, 10 steps onwards. The one on the board is at the front edge of the board. You're looking for the penultimate step to be around about two meters, two meters, mm-hmm. 10 out from the board. And generally speaking, whether it's 10 to 18 steps, it's going to be there or thereabouts in terms of the approach. That's another thing you can do. You can put a mark down because then you can tell whether they're too far or too close to the board from the penultimate. Don't yep. coach to take off from the board, coach from the penultimate. But if you get them to run through, almost ignore the fact that there's going to be a slight undulation through the mat, because what's going to happen when you come off the third the third step out mat? You're going to have to put your foot down. It's like running, going down a step, isn't it? So albeit it's only a centimetre or so drop. So you bend your knee automatically. So you're going to bend your knee by X amount of degrees of flexion, two to three centimetres of hip drop, you've loaded the leg in a strong position, the foot's down flat, and then what you should feel is the hips whip through, move forwards quickly into the takeoff and the free leg lags behind from the penultimate step movement. And it's able to advance more freely in front of the hip. If that knee is too far forwards on the penultimate, then you're not going to be able to get it in front of the hip at the takeoff. So there's a lot of nuances to where that knee is, the free legs, free legs knee. No, the takeoff knee on the penultimate step as it steps onto the board. That's important to look for as well. You want it the two knees to be level, really, or okay. slightly in advance, or slightly in advance. But generally speaking, the mats enable the athlete, and this is my experience. Perhaps it's the way I'm able to instruct. But 
if, if it didn't work, I wouldn't be doing it, but simply. But beyond the technical methodology behind improving the takeoff, you can also strengthen the takeoff, power up the takeoff by using, well, you can put, this is more obvious, perhaps, put the mats on the penultimate step. Because if you put two mats, two, three mats, or three, four centimeters in total height on the penultimate, you're going to drop down to the takeoff board with, with greater vertical force. You're going to put more force down into the board, of which, of course, you've got to then send back upwards. Mm-hmm. Now, I would say, is there a more specific way to develop eccentric ability for the takeoff than that drill? If anybody knows that, let me know, because I want to use it. But if you're talking about trying to be as specific as you can to the takeoff, developing the takeoff, that is overloading more so than any weight training exercise would do, any skipping drill, any free leg takeoff drill on the track, because you are taking off and you're learning to absorb and return that force. Again, you don't want to, you can't try to power off the takeoff. You've just got to develop the ability, and that's where the other jigsaw pieces of my approach come into play to give you the foundations to be able to handle that. When my guys can go back to 14, 15 steps and hit a takeoff with two or three mats on the penultimate, the seasoned ones can. Um, so not only am I looking for the technical improvement through the positioning of two mats, third step out on the board, I'm also looking to develop takeoff ability through a platform, two or three mats on the penultimate. But you can also put two mats on the third step out as well. Yes, it makes the drop onto the penultimate greater, but again, you're teaching the ability to resist the impact, to absorb and return on the penultimate as well. So again, if you're stronger in that position, you'll move quicker onto the takeoff. I made a video, World Indoor Tour this year, and Willie Williams actually reached out to me and he, he mm-hmm. said, he bends his knee a lot. Mm-hmm. If you see a still, he's, well, he's a dunker, so it makes sense. He lo- he loves yeah. him so he, like he, he's a, he's very strong with that arc into a dunking a basketball like he's amazing with power as well as speed but yeah I can see where that tendency would probably come from. Again, it's where he jumps. Again, it, so this is another thing you got to think about in time. You've got to think what takeoff mechanic suits the jumper that you've got. Mm-hmm. So that's about a slice of the cake, as it were. But he said to me that bucket hat. Dendi was one of the best exponents of doing it how you should do it. But even if you freeze frame Dendi on these panels, it's a good degree of knee bend. That's why I don't think, well, I don't tell people to bend their knee because it's going to happen anyway. Mm-hmm. Dendi is one of the quickest guys across through the, through the takeoff. And yet, if you look at his freeze frame on his penultimate, there's quite a lot of flexion in the knee, bend at the knee. So you, you can't get out of the habit you're going to have to set. You have to set to jump far. You just run through, you're not going to get any purchase on the takeoff in order to get height or even go properly off of the board and hold your takeoff drive. So you need to know how to set. And it's the nuances, the degrees of setting that becomes the art, that extra level of trying to work out what really works for the jumper. So that's why I do them. And I do, as I said, I wouldn't do them if they didn't work. Um, Having said that, the only person who couldn't get on with them was Elliot Sappho, the guy that jumped 786. Mm. And for the life of me, at the time, I couldn't understand why he couldn't do it because everybody else was able to do it, or everybody of that ability, the 720 or 7 metres and 580 girls were all able to do it. And 
it was because he was incredibly flat through the last five or six steps. Everything went forwards. He wasn't, he was a pusher as a runner, although we got him obviously to stand up as he came into the board. So he was driving himself through the takeoff. If you drive yourself through the takeoff, you're not able to settle the set on the penultimate as much. If he did, he would often block extremely hard on the takeoff. And because he was such a naturally talented athlete, I mean, one competition, he jumped 760 with a humongous block that basically sent him straight up into the air. And then the next one, he ran flat through the takeoff and still jumped 760. So, but that was, the, he's the only guy that ran in a certain way that didn't, didn't really suit the mats. Up until that point, or subsequent to that point, I've not really had anybody else that's mm -hmm. done it. So you do have to try to work out. In hindsight, I can see now why he did it. And in the end, I gave up because I thought we well, are jumping far enough. Why are we doing this with you? Yeah. Not, <laughs> again, you've got to be, the more you learn, the more you think you know, the more you don't know. And then you realize, and then you think, oh, there's a eureka moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at, I know I'm going on a bit, but if you look at Heike Dreschler, for example, she crabs a bit into the takeoff when you look at her jumping. She sits down quite a lot, and therefore the undulation of the hips is hardly there. So it's a very flat movement into the takeoff as well. And I believe, as one of my old coaches said to me, I need to check this on the video, that she used to take off toe first. You take off so you've got less braking and more speed going off the board, and I wouldn't mm -hmm. recommend that everybody brings to the event certain qualities and those qualities are very specific not only to running but to how you take off and you've got to try to work out how to get the takeoff right for the particular jumper mm -hmm. I, mean, I could give more examples of other athletes that i've coached but i don't know whether that's relevant at the moment i've given one i suppose or a couple yeah no you, you definitely have and what i like about those i suppose the implementation of a lot of those methods is that they can yield the physiological benefit of, and you had mentioned you know greater eccentric capacity at a very in a very specific manner but then i i think you know it's a subtle way of integrating you know you know let's say an athlete has lost the feel of the penultimate a little bit and say you're someone who doesn't traditionally use them i think like even like a few contrast reps of that can just reinstall that again, maybe flatter um, push through the penultimate that will elicit the the fast, powerful whipping action that you need through the takeoff. I've certainly seen that. So I think there's, I think what you've probably got at this stage is a very fluid way of, of subbing them in and out, not just through, let's say the training year and, and seeing how that can kind of, be measured through intensity and technical development but even during the in-season when perhaps someone's lost touch of what they're really good at or what works for them um which takes yeah a lot, a lot of experimentation but I, I can definitely say that i've experimented a little bit with having a raised mat on the penultimate and how that like overloads the takeoff and it's unbelievable how much knee bend you then experience at the takeoff but the thing is as you repeat that it gets sharper and you obviously are able to do without buckling as much. And then I would also say that for, for, for myself, um, I need a certain amount of, um, feeling through that penultimate. I don't know exactly in degrees, but I'll just say that if it's completely, um, if I'm, if I'm running through the board completely too much, uh, the takeoff tends to be quite dead and flat where 
most of my best jumps have had some element of height. So it's just like finding the sweet spot where that, you know, maybe if I've lost touch with it, that, that there's a, there's a need to kind of reintegrate. But so, yeah, there's a lot of, of profile building with the athlete and, and obviously uh, knowing how to, to implement those things. It's a, it's an interesting thing, but it's certainly a tool that I've found to be useful in, in some degrees for my own self and, and, and the athletes that I work with too. Cause you, you know, if you create the raise at the takeoff, you're also allowing them more time for maybe in a lesser intense um, approach speed to, to rehearse takeoff mechanics to um, like teaching a hitch or a double hitch. You know, we see that all the time with more advanced jumpers that are kind of switching to the double hitch. They're doing so from maybe a six to eight step approach early in the season. And they're able to do that because of the increased flight time. Now, would you want to do that all year round when, you know, you're getting closer to competition season, perhaps not. You don't want them to lift at the takeoff, but, you know, that's not to say you can't use it early and to, to get mental repetitions and coordination patterns down early in the season. No, I agree. I agree. I think to give a point that maybe helps any you know, young, in terms of time spent coaching, not in terms of years, but in terms of coaching long jump, if you don't spend a lot enough time at the pit you're coaching a sprinter and not a long jumper so many people seem to want to start technique work too late in the training year in my mind or they get fixated on jumping off 10 steps and i've had i'm not going to say where they've come from about athletes come to me and they say my coach doesn't let me jump further than eight off of more eight eight or nine steps 10 steps and they're fast guys they're 10 seven runners and what they what they're trying to therefore do is lever themselves off the board because they're trying to jump far but they haven't built up enough speed to jump far and because they've jumped off 10 steps for god knows how long they become the master of 10 steps which isn't the right distance for them to jump off or anybody for that matter but the work to do the takeoff and again, I heard you say that when you do the penultimate step work, you bend at the knee. When we, well, when we first started it, that none of mine did. Probably because they were eccentrically trained sufficiently in the first place. And they'd done sufficient loads and loads of off the run-up takeoff work. So, yeah, we started with one mat and then we got up to two, then we got up to three over a period of time. But every time I break it, bring it in there, like I've got a jumper called Paul Ogan, 778, not the quickest guy, but he's he's really worked hard to jump. I can put two, three mats down, second or third session if I wanted to, off 11 steps, and he'd handle it. Because mm-hmm. he's got the, the quantity of specific work behind him that enables him to do that. So I think the mismatch is often there between the end result, which is the long jump, and the preparatory steps that takes you to being able to long jump and perform the takeoff, for example. 95% of the long jump to me is the run-up, the last three steps, the takeoff and the takeoff drive. If you take off properly, it doesn't matter if you do a hitch kick single or a double or a hitch hang, I'd advise not doing a hang, because if you don't do it properly, you're going to over-rotate. You need to be able to clear the ball, push the foreleg out, and then if you go into a hitch hang or a hitch kick, then you've got built, you've bought yourself more distance from the takeoff. People who do hangs often just pull the leg, the free leg straight back. 
mm-hmm. and don't clear the board efficiently. But, Which is what I do. <laughs> well, if you just you just got to start working on pushing and pulling. Well, that's that's precisely I, t- I told you what I'm currently working on because I've I've noticed those things and if I I suppose another thing just not to intercept but I've noticed about hitch kickers is that they can keep underneath themselves right at the board so there's no real lean back. I feel like mm. hang people are more partial to kind of leaning away from the takeoff uh, because mm. it's going to be the only thing that allows them to get into proper leg shoot. Whereas mm. the hitch hitchers can be more like aligned right at the end so that and they, they'll still control the rotation anyway and get into that proper leg shoot if that makes sense their body will elongate later in the movement and they're going to be able to coordinate it I, I find that hang hang people will either go into the leg shoot incredibly early or if they have a later kind of synchronization they just won't be able to get the feet out in front of them that's at least what I've experienced unless they're extremely good they're an 8 meter jumper or something like that yeah, yeah. I mean, but you look at most hang jumpers, men in particular, it's a hitch hang. So it's still like the arms may count, will counter rotate rather than individually rotate. But there's the drive, top to bias monitor, there's a drive off the board, then there's a hold, then there's a push of the free leg and a pull back, and then into your hitch hang. And you will get leg separation between the legs. You won't just be in a banana shape as for the normal hang. The rotation of the movements of the legs post takeoff will help put the legs out in front of you. You don't have to do it quite yourself. So with a hitch kick, obviously, the legs will spin around. And if you do it properly, they'll spin out in front of you into a leg shoot. With a hitch hang, it's similar as well. If you lay back on the takeoff, you know, obviously Ivan Spanovich does this, or Valletta does that. There's, an issue, there's reasons for that, which I could go into. But you're going to slow yourself down and going to develop greater eccentric, you're going to develop greater vertical velocity at the takeoff. It comes down to working out what type of jump you are. But you, yeah, and with a hang jump, you've got to clear the ball, whether you do a hitch hang or a hang. But to be honest, none of us are blessed. Well, not, not very many, oh, I've got to be careful what I say here. You need a lot of speed to be able to jump far. And if you're wasting a lot of that speed by laying back and not setting the jump up, then you're not going to jump as far as what you can. Even if you slow, put your foot out in front of you and hope that you're going to get more height that's going to take you forwards. The height is only going to take you up and then you're going to stall and you're going to drop down out of the air. You need to bring as much as much controllable speed through the last three steps and go forwards off the takeoff. If you're laying back and going too, too vertically, you're not jumping as far as what you could. So I, w- I don't really coach anybody to do that. It's all about you go through the last, you you attack the last three steps. You can work, you can, I'm hesitating because I could give you an example, I'm debating whether to or not. You can work differently from the penultimate onto the takeoff. You can push and then put your foot out further in front of you. And I suppose in a way that is a bit like what Ivana Valletta does. She breaks a little bit, but the woman's taking off at 9.6 metres a second and has a vertical velocity of about 3.2, 3.4 metres a second. So she's just as quick as, in the, well, she's probably in the top two or three speed vertical horizontal velocity jumpers, but she's creating a lot of vertical velocity as well. 
-hmm. So you're getting the best of both worlds. But hers is a pretty unique way of taking off. Um, the, guy, the Cuban guy that's now Spanish, what's his name? The one that nearly jumped over the pit in Stockholm. Oh, uh, Echeverria? Yeah. He's very eccentrically strong with a very long last step breaking, but that's because his legs enable him to do that. He has to get over his takeoff more quickly. But there are people, Luva Mayonga as well, jumps 860, jumped mm -hmm. 860. More I jumped against him, saw, saw him in person, actually. Um, it was amazing and, to watch. No, I was just going to say, sorry about that. I just was it in my head. You've got to look at the leg. <laughs> Sounds a bit dodgy. You've got to look at the legs that the jumper's got. Some, but I mean that physiologically. Some of jumpers can return energy a lot more than others. Yeah. So somebody like Mionga has got that um, eccentric capacity just inherently within, within him. So has Irvin Saladino. Because I asked Nelly Amura once, did you teach... Saladino to take off the way that he did. He said, well, I helped him take off, but he came to me with that ability in the first place. So we don't all take off the same. You've got sprint takeoffs, you've got planted takeoffs, you've got strength takeoffs. And you've got to try to work out, well, should, some of it's probably quite obvious, but maybe it isn't. But you've got to try to work out what takeoff suits a particular jumper. And then once you've got that, then you should be onto a winner. <laughs> but it's not always apparent. I mean, if you've got a guy that's running 9.8 seconds with 100 and taking off 11, 10.8, 11 metres a second, then they're probably going to go flatter and only get two and only get 2.23 metres a second of vertical velocity. You've got somebody coming at 10.5 metres a second, and you think, well, okay, I can possibly improve their vertical velocity because I've got the eccentric capacity. Then you might want to spend more time working on the ability to get high. Yeah, I like a, a 10 Taglu type guy. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, he's just got that innate ping yeah. for the board. He's a parkour athlete first, him. apparently. Yeah, he and what, was. Yeah. And what do they what do they do? Like stick landings for days and whole, whole, handle ridiculous forces from huge drop heights. It was Dan Bramble. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Free running parkour. Yeah. Yeah. So it's if I say horses for courses, it's not as general as that, but it's specific courses for specific courses, trying to work out what suits the jumper. Because you probably wouldn't say teach somebody to run into the board like Tentogli and run the way that he runs. But it works for him, and it's a very controlled methodology. And he is running fast. He would be able to mm -hmm. jump 860 or whatever without running 10, 10 and a half metres a second or 10.6, 10.7 metres a second. So it is... The more you look at we talked a lot about long jump, but the more you look at it, the more complex it probably gets because you've got to look at those finite motor happening and movements and the particularities of the, the individual jumper and try to get the right training for them. And I'll hold my hand up and say that's where I probably fall a little bit short because I coach probably too many people. You want to, if, if you're really going to work it out, you probably just need two athletes or you coach one person for one hour and then another one for an hour and then another one and then wear yourself out in the process of coaching but be that as it's made if you really um yeah the more i think about it the more specific you can get obviously the better you athlete you're going to produce because there's something's going to have to give if you've got five or six athletes you know human capacity just runs out after a while and you you see something and you don't say it because you're too tired to say it or it's going to detract from the other one other four jumping the other four or five jumping but anyway that's a slight digression but i'm just probably saying that a coach who's 
only got one to two or is able to train very elite athletes singularly or in, in pairs is probably going to get a greater return. I mean, I notice that if I coach one or two athletes, it's a lot easier than coaching four or five at the same time and trying to do long and triple jump at the same time. So, um, yeah, go on, or I've gotten on a little bit about the takeoff and the mechanics of the takeoff and the specificity, but it, ultimately it does matter. So if you want to do your job properly, then you're going to try and turn over every stone that's going to enable the jumper to jump as far as they can. And that means that you've got to try to be as specific as you can to that individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's a good follow on from, from the top, the topic of the boxes and perhaps the different builds of jumpers out there and, and even how you might adapt training accordingly to them. Um, and even though there are of course abilities that we all need, uh, how you might coax that out of an athlete uh, it would look different to, you know, one other. And, and I think Echeverria, obviously Mignonga are quite similar in nature for, for how they kind of achieve such, you know, great distances in the long jump. It's like someone said to me before, you'll rarely have a world-class long jumper who doesn't have everything. In other words, like yeah. they've got to have supreme amounts of elasticity. They have to have a lot of speed. They have to have exceptional technique. And of course, their fundamental power levels are also very, very high level. And so, you know, when you look at Echevri, when you look at Minyanga, it's very obvious, and Tentoglu as well. I think probably, you know, without being an expert on on the biomechanics of, of what he's running, probably what's missing for him to, to jump 890 is probably the speed element that he's not closer to 11 meters per second because it seems like he gets every inch out of the, the speed that he does have. Yeah, you're probably right then. I never really thought about that. I mean, everything being equal, the faster you are, the further you will jump. But you can be, you shouldn't be too fast, but you can be too fast. Mm-hmm. I was in the European, I was at the European Championships and the letter opened with 704 or something, first jump of the competition, and Malika Miambo was on playing catch-up, and she was clearly running faster than any other jumper in that competition, but she couldn't time the takeoff, and every jump was 690 or 695, 693. She was obviously under pressure, but the speed was greater. Maybe she wasn't at her 730 or whatever it was, Doha, best of where it was in the World Championships, but she you have to be able to take off out of the speed. So yeah, Tentoglu, if you've got faster, you've got to make sure that the takeoff variable matches the speed variable. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you get a mismatch again. And that is why the long jumper has to train, has a long jump. I mean, it sounds obvious, you have to train as a long jumper. But you could do loads and loads of fly 20s, you could do loads and loads of work on improving your max velocity. But you don't, then you go to the run-up. You don't run quite as fast, maybe 98%, but um, can't take off because you're running. You have a pattern of things, the two things together. So if you're trying to develop more speed, you've got to take off at speed, even if you're doing lots and lots, lots and lots of run-ups and doing a token takeoff. This is my thoughts on it anyway. Yes, you want to get faster, but at the same t- token, in the bulk of your training year, when you're looking at doing your max velocity work, you've got to do max velocity work for want of a better description on the run-up as well with takeoffs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I, I found that ma- like massively, like a, that's a key differential to make that seems obvious, but is massive. Um, You know, 
one of the ways I at least do that and I find it useful is is measuring your second foot down from a pop-up. So as you run through the takeoff, I, I noticed even, I remember it was kind of during the COVID, I, I got quite a bit faster on their own way. I started to crack like 10 meters per second, like to get into 10.3, 10.4. And my pop-ups are really short. Like they were about 7.30 or 7.40, which is pretty short for someone who's running that fast and, and as trained as I was. But I kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it. And how I began to time up the takeoff, and it might be a further justification to where you might bring mats in from a short approach if we're talking about your philosophy and um, to accelerate that. But ultimately, like that specific ability of matching fast running with high forces was like the icing on the cake. And it's not even the icing on the cake because it's like literally the only thing you need to be good at. But like it's uh it's the end it's the end goal, right? And so I, I I've just kind of you know, relayed what you've said there in 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 a kind of anecdotal way, and your philosophy actually reminds me of, or how you've kind of pieced that together reminds me of someone who's the current coach at Louisville. You had mentioned that Oliver's old um, coach of Larry Ma- or of Larry Myricks was at University of Louisville. Current coach there, Bob Turnoffer, who was my first guest on this podcast, he um very much starts from like four to five steps during a winter season. Like he's not afraid to go very short approach for technical purposes use boxes use mats it's actually a big proponent i believe for uh, um very very small mats as well i don't know how much you've talked to him but then he has done a lecture on converting approach speed to um to takeoff power and and basically that like he doesn't decide that he's going to just do X weeks of fly runs at the, you know, especially coming into the competitive phase. He's like, we're going to work on whatever the athlete needs. Cause then ultimately the approach run is, is, uh, is specific enough in terms of speed that I'm probably going to get the hit I need. And he's like, and if that person is fast enough already true measurement, then why am I spending loads of times doing more flies just because it's supposed to be, you know, the textbook way of doing it he's like well that's not what they need they need more repetition of converting that speed exactly yeah do you want to continue or should i go on no i mean that, that was that was my point but i just I, I just felt like that's what you were getting to there and it's another coach that kind of shared philosophy and it also adjoined to some of the things you said earlier about like you know starting technical work early i know that that guy starts like really with the from the first week he's starting like in runners four-step jumps that's mm. just how he does it but it makes a lot of sense why because he's like never getting too far away from the event you can't i mean obviously the closest you can get to the event is doing the event and but you can't do that every single day for obvious reasons from a neural point of view from their breakdown but you don't want to step too far away back from it i mean again it's i if the viewers could see me or the listeners could see me, I kind of look to the side because I'm thinking, who am I to tell you this? I mean, but I suppose I've learned, you know, you, all the listeners are going to have your own ideas, but it just seems so obvious that to get better at long jump or anything for that matter, you best not step too far back from doing the actual activity. And yet you see so often people stepping back consistently and for long periods of time from what's actually needed and yeah i i sometimes just don't understand why you would do that but but, but people do it and if yeah again, as i said to one of 
<laughs> so somebody could justify to me why you do that, then I probably wouldn't sound like so exacerbated sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you've alluded to it already, though, and I think I'll, I'll kind of chime in on my own kind of opinion on it. Is that like there's a fearfulness around like peaking too early, but w- when you're kind of as knowledgeable perhaps yourself is, is that you kind of have an abundance way of simplifying and reducing it back to its subtle form but still keeping it relatively specific so you know you you mentioned that for endurance you're doing those very um relevant and um customized drills to to elicit fitness but also you know if we just want to even break it down to like bob's philosophy is that he's long jumping from four steps in flats that is not the same thing as doing it from 20 steps. So I understand that people are worried about um, perhaps peaking too early, but know that the adaptations to get that kind of towards, or even the time to get towards uh, 12, 14 steps will be over a matter of months, which case you might have a more technically proficient athlete and have gone through the necessary progressions, unnecessary progressions, because that won't seem necessary to some people. But like point being is that, you've touched on things that have gradually exposed the body to the physiological parts of the event that allow them to not break down when they hit the more specific components. And then I'll also say that, um, you know, the, the acceleration is another example that I gave 20 meters, uh, on grass and flats is not the same as 40 meters in, on in spikes on the, on a hard Mondo surface. So, you know, when you kind of have a lot of different tools and layers of, of what let's say makes a very specific form of training less intense, then you can see how that would layer over months and that you actually do have a lot of time and ways to progress training in a very linear fashion, but it's not, you know, let's say big leaps and bounds away from the, the actual event itself. Whereas, you know, perhaps some of the things that you talked about earlier with the six, three hundreds, et cetera, like that couldn't be further away from the event. I, I agree. Um, keeping it specific and building up over time, gradually and incrementally, but specifically, is what logically is going to work. And if you don't jump at the pit until in the UK till late December with an indoor season starting three or four weeks later, you're going to struggle. Um, the first competitions are always going to be a bit hit and miss because you try a bit harder. They shouldn't be, but they will be because of nerves and everything. But you shouldn't, then you should quickly settle down. I mean, a lot of jumpers that come to me or talk to me and I get contacted by people from all over the world. Oh, I've gone to my first competition. I can't take off. And that's where we come back to you. You've only jumped off 10 steps in the two weeks before or something, up until two weeks before you've done no run-ups. And let alone you haven't done any specific conditioning work. But that, that, that incremental, specific dosing also... I mean, it's another subject in its own right. And again, I, I learn as I'm going, but peaking. We talked about it earlier with the traditional versus undulating versus block periodization, but there's more to it than that. Um, Goran or Bradovich, Ivana's coach, spelled out in detail how he micro blocks her training to peak throughout the season. And I need to get, my, this was a few years back at a convention I went to, and I don't I can't be as specific as that I would like to but because of the way I coach and the number of athletes I coach that he works on a kind of reductivist week cycle three weeks two weeks one week three weeks two weeks one week of different loadings 
and he works out how Ivana is going to peak or be at peak throughout the whole year, basically, but very, very specifically in regards to the meetings that come up on the schedule. My more base approach, basically, probably a bit like you, as you said earlier, you're, you're within 20 centimetres of the similar distance each jump. My athletes tend to be very, very consistent across the season. But, so the, the methodology that I use, and I suppose Goran uses but to a higher level of expertise, enables that peak to continue the ability to produce high-level performances all the time. But that, again, goes back to your methodology. You probably can't do it with a traditional periodization approach anyway. But you have to be a, a coach has to understand how to peak the athlete as well. There's so much to being a coach if you really think about it. Not only are you learning how to coach the athlete technically, physiologically, and neurally, but you're also having to work out how to peak them as well. Mm. And it's a complex, complex thing. <laughs> a lot more complex than perhaps you realize when you start you and I. When I start yeah. Coaching. Have you have you done a video on that on your YouTube channel? I have indirectly. Um, not, again, I always. <laughs> I've got two parts of my YouTube channel. There's a coach athletes members area whereby if people want to get more in-depth information, and sometimes mm -hmm. I just give away a lot of in-depth information anyway, but then I do, I show my training programs and I do talk about peaking and micro, and micro peaking, micro dosing. I've also written articles. If you go to Athletics Weekly, you'll probably find some articles on peaking and micro peaking and different training methodologies to do that. Because certain forms of media are easier or better for certain things. That probably writing that is probably better than a video. Although our conversation is because our conversation has a lot of content and you're trying to find out what you want to find out about, it takes a long way to find it. Whereas mm -hmm. with an article, if it's just about that, and that's my media hat come on, come on, not that I've ever trained, but yeah, I just know how to present information that perhaps helps people. So yeah, um, I was going to naturally then go onto my YouTube channel, but I don't know whether you want to go into that. That's exactly where I want to go, John. So let, let's go there. That's absolutely where I was going with that. I think, well, the reason why I started it was because one another coach said to me, said, John, you're, you're good at explaining things. Why don't you set up a YouTube channel? And I probably should have done it when I was a journalist 15 years ago when I was traveling all over the world. I probably would have had some good content and jumped ahead of everybody else who started later but or earlier. But there's so few track and field channels out there. Yeah, there the are. growing number. It's one of the niches on YouTube that hasn't been exploited. I mean, to be honest, I can't think of another long and triple jump channel specific one. There's quite a few sprinting ones. I mean, there are some out there. Yeah. But you know, people look for that knowledge. So anyway, I was it was good, suggested to me that I start one. And then I thought, all our, all us coaches, we use our iPhones, our Android phones, we film so much content, but do we really look at it? So what it did was, one, not only did it put me onto YouTube, it forced me to look at what I was doing and also think about why I was doing it. And half the time you're at a training session and you don't see what you see when you look back at it. You haven't got the time potentially to look. But, oh, that guy's arm moved. And I didn't see that. It moved, he went into a double arm hitch hang, then a single arm hitch or whatever. And he's suddenly trying to think, well, why did you do that? Anyway, so I started making the videos and um, I had no idea about how YouTube worked. And I think the second or third video that I made had 400,000 views. And I thought, well, this is easy. <laughs> and then you learn that it's not that easy. But I wasn't doing it to be a YouTuber. I was doing it to help myself be a better coach. 
And I did have an inclination that maybe it would help me get some work because my magazine journalism work was drying up. I don't want to give you a big southern dance, but you know, people weren't reading magazines. So therefore people were going online and looking for visual ways to learn. So I thought, oh, well, it might get me some work or it might be getting people contacting me to um, ask for me to coach them. And it has. So you know, it's done me a lot of favours by doing that. And it, yeah, it was a bit of a leap of faith, faith and learning how to do it. But yeah, that's how the channel started. And um, I think I've been doing it now for nearly five years and I've done nearly 600 videos. Mm-hmm. And not that I can you know, remember all of them, obviously. And somehow I've got to 42,000 subscribers. Um, and sometimes I wonder whether people will still keep wanting to, shall we say, enjoy or be educated by the content. But then I suppose the numbers keep going. And I, and I always think, well, there's always going to be new people jumping every year. There's going to be new. Yeah. So maybe I'll stop in a couple of years' time, but who knows? I really want to get one of those YouTube plaques. But that means I have to get 100,000 subscribers. So I could give a shameful plug now. <laughs> yeah, well, no, so, that... That's also where we were going with that, because, uh, you know, as long as we we could sit here and, and chat about like plyometric training, weight training and all the other physiological components that like, of course, is included in your program, too, and how you do it, um, we would literally be here for a long time. So what I want to do is actually give the audience just, a, a, you know, or I should, should say you the opportunity to give the audience a uh, you know your your handle on on all social media sites including youtube so that they can go and check out the more deep dives um that you do and 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 maybe even get on your uh your exclusive uh site as well with regards to accessing more resources or even coaching well to be honest if you just search john shepherd long jump john shepherd triple jump john shepherd coach it invariably comes up due to the fact that there isn't a lot of coach, coaching content on the long and triple jump. I'm probably ranked on the first page of Google. If you search for those terms, nearly the whole page is going to be me, much to my embarrassment. So just search for John Shepherd long jump, John Shepherd long jump coach. But YouTube is John Shepherd track and field coach, author and editor. Instagram is John Shepherd track and field coach. And I won't bore you with the rest, but I've got Facebook and um, all threads and all those ones as well. You'll find me. And I've got a website, www.johnshepherdfitness.com. And that's off the assumption that they don't already subscribe to you, because I'm sure there's actually plenty of people listening to this that do and are regular watchers of your videos. I mean, I know coaches over in the US that watch your stuff, um, which is great, but we always want to convert more people where possible. And like yeah. um, anything that can, you know, be more specific or, or let's say talked about in a, I suppose more uh individual manner whether that's uh, the topic of weight training or plyometrics and progressions etc uh it, it's great to know that there's dedicated videos on your site for those so definitely get on over there guys for um for all your long jumping and triple jumping needs but i know you talk specifically about sprint training too so sprinters over there you know that the methods that john goes through is not uh you know is not excluding you by any means. So there's something for everyone in in reality. Um, but John, I just want to say thanks very much for for taking the time to come on and chat with me. This has been a long time coming. 
uh, as you as you mentioned before we got on here, I pestered you long enough, <laughs> and uh, I, I'm glad that uh, you you eventually submitted to my proposal and and came on here and and joined the list of great guests that we have had on. So I do appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, and hopefully, I haven't bored everybody. <laughs> No, you definitely haven't. We're we're track and field junkies over here, much like the viewers of your YouTube channel. So we're here for the information and you definitely provide it. So thank you and thank the audience for uh, for your continued support. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Track and Field Performance Podcast. Until next time, take care. Thanks again for taking the time to listen to another episode of the Track and Field Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed it and you'd like to support the show, you can head on over to a podcasting platform of your choosing and leave a review, or you can share it online on social media so that your network of practicing professionals can benefit from listening to the great guests that we get on this show.